Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 53. I'll start off by saying that I'm going to be stepping away for a brief time, stepping away from the pulpit, but not ever from study. And Aaron and her, that's H-U-R, will be stepping up and holding up my arms in this phase of our spiritual warfare. And by that, I mean that Pastor Craig Brown and Pastor Brian Messick will each be bringing two messages. And they will be on the new guest speaker's slider. And I've gotten comments from some of you that are very glad to hear the guest speakers that haven't had a chance to hear them before. Well, they're up on the, the website. And so for... Four messages in my absence from the pulpit, you will have these very capable preachers of the gospel. And uh, I, my, I, for one, am looking forward to hearing their messages. I always do listen to them. And so we're grateful. And we are grateful, Heavenly Father, that we have this opportunity to look into your word and to see Jesus through the lenses provided by the Spirit of grace. We pray today, Father, that as the word goes forth, that it will do so to the edification, the upbuilding of the church, which is a prolepsis or a foreview of a universally redeemed community because of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and give you thanks for this opportunity. And I already give you thanks for when pastors Brown and Messick bring their messages May they be anointed with your power. May they go forth with the conviction of the Holy Spirit and also to the edification of the body of Christ. I ask this in, his na- in Christ's name. Amen. We see Jesus' increment 53 comes from a phrase found in Hebrews 2.14 and 15. I want to begin today's message by asking a question. Is the, what we could call the systemic human problem, death, and death is a systemic human problem, is the human problem of death solved by a divine or a human solution? Is the solution to the systemic problem of death in the human race, and in fact, death creation-wide, is the solution to that a divine or a human solution? Now, if I know many in Tetelestai Phalanx, I know what you're thinking, and I know that you've already snapped an answer forth in your mind. But I want to say that we may be tempted to say that there is no human solution to the systemic problem of death. But let's be careful. That's a blanket statement. We should be careful to say instead that though the solution 
to the problem of death is indeed divine, it came through a man. It was certainly a divine solution. But it was a divine solution enacted through a man. Not any man, but the man, Christ Jesus. The only mediator between the living God and the human race, dead in trespasses, as Ephesians 2.1 calls it. The only mediator is Jesus Christ between the living God and humankind dead in trespasses. The mediatorship of Jesus is immeasurably important. And him being a mediator of a better covenant, of an everlasting covenant, of a new covenant, is a theme that will reverberate later on in Hebrews. As the mediator, Jesus is both God and human in one person. He stands not just between God and part of humanity, but as the mediator between God and all of humanity. As his divinity takes in and embraces all of divinity. So his human nature takes in and embraces all of humanity. As the mediator between God and human beings, he is not two persons. In fact, we don't even say, as I heard a preacher say recently, that God exists in three manifestations. There isn't three manifestations. There are three persons. To say that God exists in three manifestations is to mistake the triune God and to put forth a doctrine called modalism, M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M. Modalism is the doctrine that God is one person but expressed in three manifestations. But rather, God is three persons in one divine being. And as the mediator between God and human beings, Jesus is not two persons. He is still one of the three persons of the Trinity or the triune God. But by virtue of his partaking in blood and flesh, please notice that because that's a phrase we're going to hover around in Hebrews 2.14. By becoming or by virtue of his partaking of blood and flesh, he is both God and human in one person. Or we could say one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. So we have to say that the solution to the problem, it's a systemic problem, meaning that it involves 
all, not some, of the human race, with the exception of the mediator. It's systemic in that it is fraught throughout the whole of the human race. And so the solution to the problem, the systemic problem of death, is not a matter of divine or human, but it's a matter of a divine and human solution. The solution to the problem of death, and problem is kind of an understatement or an understated way to reveal what death is. It's a problem. We have to say that the solution to the problem of death is not only divine, but also human, because the solution is Jesus, the God-man. When you see Jesus, you see the solution to the systemic problem of death, not only through the human race and throughout all time, but death <clears throat> as riddled throughout all of creation. <clears throat> Let's bring this into sharper focus. Turn to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-one if you want. To bring this into sharper focus, let's consider what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.21. He says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. We're talking about a divine and a human solution to the problem of death. Death is the problem in our little equation today or our little formula. Death is the problem. It came through a man. The resurrection of the dead is the solution to the problem of death. That solution came through a man. Through one representative man through one representative man's obedience. The solution, by definition, is the resurrection of the dead. That solution came through a man. The man, whom Paul will later say is the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. And the second man, meaning the second representative man, I call him the second sir, first sir being Adam, S-I-R. And if that's too gender-specific for you, and I say, man, I don't care. The Bible says, anthropos, man, the man Christ Jesus. He's called the second man, or the second representative man, in 1 Corinthians 15.47. And that Second man is Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
through whom God gave us the victory over death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57. So after Paul's statement, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Right after he writes that, guess what he wrote? He wrote this. For just as in Adam, the first man, the first representative man, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. That's 1 Corinthians 15.22. Oddly enough, it comes right after 1 Corinthians 15.21. Adam is the one man through whom sin came into the world and death through sin. And it passed upon all humanity, men and women. That's Romans 5.12. Death came to all human beings. It's a systemic problem. Jesus and no other is the man through whom righteousness or justification and resurrection Resurrection of the dead to life comes to all human beings through the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25 and 5.18 connects very intimately resurrection with justification. He was raised for our justification. And our means all of humanity because in Romans 5.18, life-giving justification comes to all. So here we see Jesus in his universally saving and life-giving role. Here we see Jesus in his universally life-giving role. The solution to the problem of death in all the human race is a divine and human solution. For all the human race. And when I say a human solution, I speak only of the human man, Jesus Christ. The divine and human solution is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then dead. Then buried. Then raised from the dead then ascended, exalted, seated, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is the beneficence of God, continuing in heaven for us after his self-sacrificing death. Jesus is the beneficence of God, continuing in heaven for us as our great high priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for us in order to save us to the uttermost. We are saved to the uttermost in the resurrection 
of the dead, which is the resurrection of all of humanity, which is rooted and guaranteed by the resurrection from the dead of the one man, Christ Jesus. Now, Hebrews is the focus of our study. Hebrews is dealing particularly with the practical liberation, a practical liberation of all those who all their lives were subject to the fear of death by the one who had the power of death, that being Hodiabolos, called the slanderer. That's a better and more accurate translation than the devil, although he whom we call the devil is the slanderer. We have to understand that the devil or the slanderer or elsewhere known as the adversary, Satana or Satan, does not have power over death in the sense that he has all power. Only God, listen carefully to this statement, only God who is love is omnipotent. Only God who is love, is all-powerful. The slanderer has power over death in as much as he distorts the meaning of death and the implications of death and lies about it. He says, and man does he use preachers to say it, Men and women who are ordained to be gospel ministers. He uses ministers of Satan. He uses them to say that death means eternal torment. Whether for the non-elect of humanity as the Calvinists might put it, or for non-believers, as Arminians and others might put it, or for people who in one way or another have not aligned to God's will or commandments or law, as legalists might tell you. Again, diabolos means slanderer. Now, somebody might want to put the label on their leather jacket or on their motorcycle, Diabolos, like, I'm the devil. But what they're just saying is, I'm a slanderer. <laughs> I'm a gossip. I'm a maligner. I'm a liar. So, I don't know. Maybe change your name. Now, by legal definition, when I say definition, I usually almost use the American Heritage College Dictionary 5th edition. If there's the 6th one, let me know. I'd want to get it. But by legal definition, to slander is, quote, oral communication of false and malicious statements that damage the reputation of another. The power that the devil has as the slanderer, the power that he has 
over death, and the power there is kratos, which means a kind of dominion or a leverage of death. The power that the slanderer has over death is not power over life and death per se, but power to lie about death in order to leverage that fear over people. It is the power that he has to effectively lie about death in order to damage the reputation of God and enslave people to a wrong idea of God. He implies, or he states outright, that God inflicts eternal or everlasting punishment, and that's death. That God inflicts eternal death as punishment on people with whom he is displeased. That's not the gospel now. I'm not talking about what God says or what the Bible says. I'm talking about what the slanderer says. Sometimes he borrows the mouths of people who say they're preachers or pastors or evangelists. Again, the devil is a liar. Jesus said that right out, outright. Oh, Diablos, he's a liar. He is the consummate liar. For this reason, the command, listen carefully to this if you want some practical doctrines. For this reason, the command in Ephesians 4.25, rid yourselves of the lie. The same word is used there for put off as is used in Hebrews 12.1-3, to put off from yourselves the sin that easily besets us and every weight that holds us back. Rid yourselves or throw off from yourselves the lie. That mandate is very closely aligned with the command, give no opportunity to the devil. Ha Diabolos in 427 of Ephesians. Four twenty six talks about anger. You can tell the devil's people today they're all charged up with anger and slander and with maligning the reputation of one category of people or another. The devil's people. They're loud like Goliath. They attempt to be intimidating. Like Goliath. They're murderers in their heart, like their father, the devil. They accept and propagate his lie. Now, to illustrate this whole passage that we're talking about, that the devil is a slanderer. To illustrate this, when Jesus confronted a man in whom there were many demons, the demons cried out to Jesus and said, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us 
before the time. Matthew 8, 29. Have you come to torment? Because you know why? They assumed that the Son of God came to torment the fallen creatures called demons. And they assume that the Son of God will come to torment fallen mankind. That's slander. Per their request, Jesus drove them out of the man into a herd of swine, pigs. Jesus simply said, when they said, let us go into that herd of swine, he said, all right, go. And they went into the pigs who rushed headlong over a cliff and drowned in the lake. Please notice, for our purposes, that the demons expected to be tormented by the Son of God. This is the slander of the devil, their prince. The prince and director of airborne spirits, as he's called in Ephesians 2.2. So the slanderer hisses. He's also called Ophis, the serpent. The slanderer hisses the Son of God, just like his father, is a tormentor. He came to torment us, and he'll come again to torment people whom we can successfully deceive. But that's a lie. Jesus will come to restore everything, says Acts 3.21. To regenerate everything, says Matthew 19.28. To reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and above the earth. In Philippians 2.9-11 and Hebrews 5.13. Make that Revelation 5.13. You can read Hebrews 5.13 if you want, but it might convict you. So let's stick with Revelation 5.13. By the just and mysterious law of the cross, God will even transform the greatest evils into the supreme good. Not torment the greatest evils, transform the greatest evils into the supreme good, or a supreme good. The only way to transform evils into the supreme good is to bring them into the supremely good one, Jesus Christ, and have Jesus Christ comprise them and they be summed up in him. You see, the devil has power or dominion over death Only in the sense that he uses death to slander God and to intimidate people and promote fear in human beings in order to make them his willing subjects and captivate him to do his diabolical will. In 2 Timothy 2.26, that's why a preacher sometimes is supposed to be gentle and have an aptitude for teaching and to bring the word in such a way that some in his congregation or those who listen 
may be granted repentance and freed from the snare of the devil who's got them captive to do his will. And so they can become captives to do God's will without fear. Perfect love drives out all fear. You ever heard that before? We'll hear it today again in context. Go and learn what that means. The power, kratos, K-R-A-T-O-S, or dominion that the devil has over death is not infinite or absolute power. I said that before. Only the risen Christ can say, I hold the keys of death, thanatos, death, and of Hades, ades, Hades. The devil may have had those keys in this metaphorical way of looking at it. The devil may have had those keys or had that power in the past tense, but not anymore. It is one like a son of man, Revelation 1.13, with reference to Psalm 8 and Daniel 7. One like a son of man, which Jesus called himself 52 times or was called 52 times in the Gospels, son of man. It is one like a son of man who said, I hold the keys of death and of Hades. This son of man's dominion extends over the domains of death and Hades. In Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, the only name that's not found in the Lamb's book of life is the name Thanatos and his twin Hades, death and Hades. They're the ones who by name are thrown into the lake of fire and made not to be. They are, for you annihilationists, annihilated. Death and Hades. So this son of man's dominion extends even over the domains of death and Hades. To have the keys of death and Hades is to have the keys to domains or to realms, metaphorically speaking at least. The devil in Hebrews 2.14 was in a metaphorical sense in order to communicate to us what the writer's after. The devil is pictured as metaphorically to have held dominion in the realm of death. The general picture is of a terrible tyrant who holds dominion over an enslaved people. And someone comes and knocks him off and knocks him over, deposes him from his throne and liberates all those people that he had oppressed and rendered fearful and unmanned or taken away their manhood or their womanhood by fear. Jesus is the one who deposes that tyrant and has deposed him. On a political level, in the time in which Hebrews was composed and sent to a particular group of Christians, 
And I'm sort of can almost convinced that Hebrews was written in the same pretty close time frame as the book of Revelation was written. The Roman Empire at that time was exercising dominion, tyrannical dominion, bestial power. That's why Rome of the ancient Roman Empire is called the beast in Revelation's metaphorical terminology. The whore, who is the consort of the beast, is apostate Jerusalem. If you don't get that or you don't agree with that, then I would challenge you to maybe listen to our tapes or our teachings on it from Rev the Book. You spent, well, I spent 515 hours in the pulpit on that and multiply that by several other hours of study, but that's not impressive to some people and probably shouldn't be. On the political level, therefore, once again, in the time in which Hebrews was composed and sent to a particular group of Christians, the Roman Empire was exercising power and dominion over a large part of the inhabited earth, including that part that was inhabited by the audience or the recipients of the epistle of Hebrews or the homily within a letter called Hebrews. Rome exercised power in such a way that anyone who resisted the mandate, for example, to give primary homage and allegiance to Caesar as being divine or as being Lord, another title, Koryas, or Soter, Savior, or even Theos, God, or even Huios to Theu, the Son of God, which Augustus called himself. The Caesars had the power and the threat of death over those who did not pay homage to Caesar as divine. Therefore, we could say that Caesar had the power of death, and he used it to promote a tyranny of fear. He ruled by the threat of death. A king's fury is a messenger of death, says Proverbs 16:14. And again, when a king's face lights up, there is life, says Proverbs 16:15. Both of these could be said about the Roman Caesar. In the time of Daniel, backing up a bit in history, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, issued a decree that his, sta his statue be worshipped and that anyone who refused would be put to death in a furnace of fire. In Daniel 6, the corrupt governors under the Median king Darius tricked the king to sign a bill that threatened anyone who over a period of a 30-day or over the period of a month if anyone made a request of any god or man other than the king, they would be thrown into a lion pit. They said this to get Daniel, who prayed with his shutters open in his upstairs apartment so that everyone could hear him pray to God. And he did so regularly. So the king signed the bill because he was tricked by the satraps, the 120 
evil senators. He had the power of death, that king did, in that sense. So it's profitable that the recipients of Hebrews were well aware. Make that, it is probable that they were well aware. I'm reading my notes on the subject here. It's probable that the recipients of Hebrews were well aware of the power of the Roman Caesar to put them to death for their open acknowledgement of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Lord, Curios, as the Son of God, Huios to Theu, or even as God, Hebrews 1.8. Therefore, the PT says that this power is really the power of the devil or the slanderer, and that the devil or the slanderer has been destroyed by the founder of their salvation. Now, the devil being destroyed means that he will ultimately be transformed. But to be destroyed means that he is rendered ineffective. He is rendered hors de combat. He cannot have the final say in believers' lives. Like the martyrs in Revelation, they did not have to love their lives in this world. I said they did not have to love their lives in this world, Revelation 12.10 compared with John 12.25. Love it so much that they needed to renounce their faith in Jesus, God's Son. To instead of having the fury of the king, which would be death, they wanted to see Caesar's face light up because they worship Caesar and not Christ. And that's what exactly got, in a political sense, why Jesus was crucified in John 19, 15, and 16. They said, we have no king but Caesar, which, of course, would make Caesar's face light up. Eventually, the wrath of Caesar came down on Jerusalem anyway, however. The point I'm making is that we don't have to love our lives so much in this world as to renounce our faith in Jesus, God's Son, who is destined to rule future world and who, in fact, has already been exalted to the right side of the eternal King and majesty on high as the King of kings and Lord of lords. The stripping of the power of the devil meant making empty his threat of death and the threat of death issued by Rome or by a collusion of the Roman beast and the whore of Babylon. People from the whore of Babylon might tell on you if you worship Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. They might tell the Roman authorities and deliver you over to them as they did with Paul as they did with Jesus, who announced himself to be the Son of God. The Roman beast was in an illicit and illegitimate collusion with the whore of Babylon, apostate Jerusalem of the Second Temple. Even this is not so much a doctrinal dissertation on the defeat of the devil. The Hebrews writer isn't really giving a dissertation on the defeat of the devil. We could do that if you wanted to in a doctrine of demonology or Satanology and Christology and Soteriology. 
It's not so much a doctrinal dissertation on the defeat of the devil as it is an exhortation to continue boldly to hold forth the word of life in Philippians 2.16, which is their confession in Hebrews 3.1 and 4.14 of Jesus as God's unique divine and human son and that they would hold that word forth even in the face of death and that we would. None of them had to endure death up to that time of receiving this sermon in a letter. Up to that point, they had not yet had to experience death or even to be bloodied for their faith. The PT said it in 12.4 of Hebrews. You haven't resisted to the point of blood in the struggle against sin. The struggle against sin. If you're a normal Christian, you know what that is, a struggle against sin. You don't take sin lightly. And you're engaged in a struggle against sin. I guess if we were to categorize sins as to their enormity or their degree of evil, we could say that unbelief is probably the winner of that one. Withdrawing from God with an evil heart of unbelief. Hebrews 3.12. Now, Wisdom of Solomon, which is a book that was also contemporaneous generally with Hebrews and with Paul's writings. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15, verse 2. I don't say it's a canonical book, but I think this is helpful. Wisdom of Solomon 15.2 says, For even if we sin, we are yours. It's a prayer to God. Even if we sin, we are yours. Knowing your power. But we will not sin because we know that you acknowledge us as yours. That's an interesting double-edged sword there. Even if we sin, we're still yours. But it doesn't stop there. But we will not sin because we know that you acknowledge us as yours. When Jesus acknowledges me to be his brother, you think that makes me want to sin? It's quite the contrary. When Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, does that leave us with a license to sin? Quite the contrary. And we know that God has power. And that power he gives to us in the resistance of sin, in the resistance of fear, in the resistance of unbelief. That's the real resistance of our time. Now, according to the Bible, it's true. That even if we sin, we still belong to God. Okay, even if we sin, we still belong to God. Because 1 John 2.1 says, I write these things to you that you sin not, but if anyone does sin, let him or her know that he or she has an advocate. Parakletos. Not an adversary, but an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, 
who is the propitiation or the propitiation or the expiation of our sins and not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Now, so it's biblically true that even if we sin, we still belong to God. But according to the Bible, it's also true that we are to resist sin because we belong to God. Because we are His. 2 Timothy 2.19, an inestimably powerful and important verse, reveals that there's a double inscription on the foundation of God which stands sure. Now, the foundation of God that stands sure is none other than Jesus Christ. And that's why even those who never make any good decisions may suffer loss, but not of salvation. 1 Corinthians 3.10 through 15. But the foundation which stands sure has an inscription on it, and it's a twofold inscription. In fact, it has two brief inscriptions. One. The Lord knows those who are his. He knows you when when you are his. And the second is everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. You see, the double-edged sword there kind of matches what Wisdom of Solomon 15.2 says, even though that is not a canonical book. Let's give it its due when it says something right. The sin that the PT speaks of, when we deal with sin, we're dealing with the category of theology called hamartiology. The sin that the PT speaks of is the denial of faith in Jesus Christ as God's eternal son. The God-man. A denial in order to secure favor with the Caesar, to light that king's face up. Caesar, in whose tongue was the power of life and death. In fact, it was in his thumb. Down, thumbs down, you kill the gladiator. Thumbs up, you let the gladiator live. The Caesar could say death or the Caesar could say life. In the king's tongue was the power of death and life. Proverbs 18.21 so the sin that the PT is concerned with was, was the walking back of their confession, the confession of Jesus. And that walking back of that confession or that shrinking away from making that confession was departing from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief, as if God wouldn't take care of you if you confessed his son. Even if man would do all that he could to you. If we shrink from the confession because of the fear of man's disapproval, that's the sin here. And the fear of man is indeed a snare. It's a trap. Proverbs 29, 25, go and learn what this means in 25a. And then read 25b of Proverbs 29, And go and learn what that means. So again, the point of the exhortation that's built into the doctrine of the destruction of the devil 
is this. And it's found again in Hebrews 13.6. We've referred to it more than once. The Lord is my helper. He's my backup. What can man, including Caesar, do to me? What can man do to me? Hebrews 13.6 The devil has the power of death inasmuch as he can and he does kill. He kills people. Cain killed Abel because he was triggered by the evil one to do so. The instigator was the evil one. 1 John 3.12 If you say, no, the devil doesn't kill people, then why did Jesus call him a murderer and literally a man-killer in John 8.44? The devil is a killer. Jesus said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. That means that the slanderer was the instigator of the first murder. A fratricide, the murder of a brother by his brother. What was the killing of Jesus? Fratricide, murder by his brothers. But on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. The slander was the instigator of the first criminal homicide. Cain killed his brother because Cain was an agent of the evil one, the man killer, Anthropo, Anthropoctonus, Anthropoctonus, man killer, John eight forty four, Anthropo says the scripture, Anthropoctonus. Murder is one of the lusts of the devil. He likes it. So is lying. He likes it. Jesus called him the father of liars and the inventor of the lie. The lie permeates more of this world than you would ever dream. It permeates what people call science. It permeates what people call Darwinism. It permeates what people call Freudianism. It permeates systems of human thinking. It permeates what people call the gospel. It permeates the governmental halls of Congress and Senates and presidencies and dictatorships of kings across time. It permeates governments. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. It killed your Savior. It killed the one who's not ashamed to call you his brother and his sister. 
1 John 3.13 follows 1 John 3.12. Check that out. This all squares with Jesus' exhortation of his disciples, whom he had commissioned to preach the gospel. What did he say to them? Don't fear those who kill the body, but are powerless to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul, soul and body, in Gehenna. This is a clear command by Jesus not to fear men, but to fear God. He's not saying God throws people into hell, body and soul. He's saying here in Matthew 10:28, he was not agreeing with the Pharisees and with Plato who believed in an eternal punitive hell, the Pharisees and the philosopher Plato believed that. No, he was comparing the human ability only to kill the body with God's ability to kill both body and soul in Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom surrounding Jerusalem. By this, now listen carefully, by this Jesus was not saying that God ever does destroy the body and soul of anyone, but only that he is able to do so. He does not do so because the power of God is the power of infinite love. The point that Jesus is making here is the point that the PT in Hebrews is making, that Jesus' disciples should not fear man's disapproval even if man has the power to execute them for preaching the gospel. Rather, one should fear the disapproval of God, which will be manifested in a future day of evaluation when we will all stand before the Bema judgment of the Messiah. That's when the saying will come true that those who confessed me, I will confess before my Father, and those who rejected me or refused to confess me, I will confess shame before my father, about them. Go and learn what that means. It could be said of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire for nearly 1,000 years of human history that all their lives they were enslaved to the fear of death under Caesar's rule. In a universalistic sense, all human beings live all their lives enslaved to the fear of death. To be enslaved to the fear of death is not really to live. It's kind of like William Wallace said in Braveheart, all men die, not all men truly live. Jesus came that we would have life and that more abundantly. Life more abundantly is only experienced by people who have been emancipated from the fear of death, from slavery to the fear of death, by people over whom the slanderer has no sway, no power. He's not my influencer. 
In any case, we'll close with illustrating the reality that the solution to the systemic human problem of death was a divine and human solution by reading my working translation of Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Consequently, since the aforementioned children have a share in blood and flesh, he also became a partaker of the same of blood and flesh so that through experiencing death, he would render or to combat totally ineffective for fighting the one who held dominion over death, that being the slanderer, and liberate all those who all their lives were held in slavery to the fear of death. Now, I'm going to leave you with a question, and perhaps by God's grace and by God's leave, we will answer this down the road, maybe. Why is the order of the wording, the word order in Hebrews 2.14, blood and flesh, rather than flesh and blood? Why? Maybe we'll take that question on. Maybe what I'll do from here is go and learn what that means. And maybe you'll consider it. And I'll be back in the pulpit before too long to perhaps address that and other things. So, Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to have gone through 53 increments in the study of Hebrews up to now. May it result in a clearer view of the ark, the ark being Jesus, as Joshua chapter 3 indicates. May we see Jesus in a clearer vision. And I pray, Father, that in my absence from the pulpit, I pray that you will bless and empower Pastors Brown and Messick as they bring two messages each for the close of August and the very beginning of September, that you'll be with them in the preparation for these messages, in the presentation of these messages, and in the aftermath of them in which we are almost always embattled by the slanderer in one way or another. Be victorious for them and through them, we ask in Jesus' name. And we also ask that those who hear this word, I, I entrust them to the word of your grace, Father, which is able to build them up and to give them an inheritance among the saints in the light, according to Acts 20 and verse 32. In Jesus' name. Amen.